Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumb Cast. In this, the high noon of season five, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on every goddamn page of MT2, the Weird Weird West, the second in a trio of time travel adventures for TSR's Marvel Superheroes RPG. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. The Weird Weird West was written by Ray Winninger and published in 1989 by TSR. Here we are at last, the end of the road. Uh, this is a special wrap-up episode for MT2, The Weird Weird West. A special episode, a bonus episode, a chance to reflect on just the just the bullshit we've been through in this book. What the fuck, book? Uh, <laughs> this has been a perplexingly bad experience, especially at the end, which means I have a lot more to do in this wrap-up episode than I did in the last one. So let's get started. If you don't recall from last time, from the wrap-up episode for All This and World War II, Here's the format. First of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I liked in this adventure, what I found interesting, what I thought was well executed, all the positives. Then, having distilled out all the cloying sweetness of that unwanted positivity, we will be left with just a cauldron of pure bitter hate for the problems and missed opportunities in this adventure, which I will address in a couple of ways. First, I'll talk about what I didn't like in the adventure, the big stuff, the big problems that would be the things at the top of my to-do list if I wanted to actually run this thing in some form, the things I would need to fix. And then after that, just as I did for all this in World War II, I'm going to present sort of a modified version of the adventure. Based on my complaints about the adventure, how would I fix it? How would the scenes be different? For all this in World War II, this was a pretty simple matter of commenting scene by scene on some minor changes I would make. In this case, I pretty much wrote a new scenario. I'll be honest with you. But I think that was, number one, necessary to salvage the adventure. And number two still basically built on the positive features of this module. Speaking of which, let's get started with what I liked about the Weird Weird West. First of all, the overall structure, um, especially coming out of all this in World War II, uh, but even in its own right, just as a module, the way that this adventure flows from scene to scene and from segment to segment is pretty elegant. There's a, a very simple kickoff scene at the beginning that just starts the adventure. That kickoff scene drops you into sort of a situation that you can approach in many different ways, right? We were tracking three different player character teams through the whole Crozar bit, and we were able to see how different groups could all really approach the Crozar situation in different ways. So everybody's got to do the Crozar thing, but at least you get to pick your poison. Then the adventure opens up. There's a big overland map, and you have your choice of where you want to go and in what order, so that what follows, in contrast to the Crozar segment, are pretty well scripted situations, but the order in which you do them is much more open. Then at the end, everything just kind of bottlenecks down into a climax right off of more or less an open world, solve your problems in any order sort of structure. So it feels much less railroaded than all this in World War II for sure. Things are relatively well motivated and the logical connections in terms of the player characters moving from scene to scene are pretty sound. The logical connections about what NPCs are doing and why they're doing it is fucking bananas, but I'm being nice right now. Moving from the structure to the content, I also really like the gunslinger's presence in this adventure. They don't work as well as the invaders. As I've discussed throughout this book, there are problems with the gunslingers. Their power level is off. I don't like the selection of Phantom Rider as a possible player character. The team split dynamic doesn't work as well because it's like there are three tasks to do. We're going to split into two teams to do them. The styles and power levels clash so much that it's going to be hard for the mashup teams to work. It's a little bit awkward compared to the invaders. But 
I do like putting modern superheroes into conversation with Marvel heroes from another sphere, in this case the Marvel Old West universe, and just having these gunslingers around does a ton to make this feel like you're in a western. You know, when you're riding to Dodge City alongside Kid Colt and the Rawhide Kid, at least for that one beautiful moment, you're going to feel like you're having the Old West experience. Until you get to Dodge City, at which point you will have the Jurassic Park experience for some reason. Uh, speaking of the dinosaurs, though, while I don't agree with how all of the anachronistic stuff was deployed in this adventure, the idea of the time mashup in the Old West, so like instead of just having an Old West adventure, we're having things from across history all jumbled together in an overall Western setting, that's a really good idea. I like that. This is still a superhero game. Mechanically, conceptually, narratively, trying to put superhero characters into just a pure Western pastiche might get pretty samey and predictable and maybe not weird enough for what is meant to be sort of a meeting of two different worlds. And in principle, the time mashup should actually make it easier to hit Western story beats than just doing a pure Western because, you know, it's hard to sort of funnel superheroes into a gunfight at high noon riding across the prairie on horses, hanging out in the saloon, having all kinds of different characters from across history could really help integrate the player characters into the Old West setting, right? Their world has been turned upside down, and so it's not like the superheroes are the only weirdos around. And it allows you to bring in things like giant dinosaurs to appropriately sort of challenge and nudge your superhero characters into Western situations that standard Western antagonists won't be able to get them into, right? If Black Bart rides into town with his one paltry six-gun, who gives a fuck? Like on the West Coast Avengers, I mean, if Black Bart menaced a saloon that Scarlet Witch was having a nice time in, not only would she not have to meet him at high noon on Main Street, I don't think she'd have to stand up. I, I don't think she'd have to walk away from her drink to solve that problem. So having resort to other challenges and characters is nice. Unfortunately, transitioning now to the things I didn't like about this adventure, the author took advantage of none of those factors. Uh, the author, in fact, did not do nearly enough cowboy shit. I've got not enough cowboy shit here in my notes in capital letters, but by God, they're not capital enough. Not enough cowboy shit. This adventure promises cowboy shit. It does not give you cowboy shit. There is no showdown at high noon. There is no saloon brawl. There is no new sheriff to take on a gang of outlaws. There is no horse chase. There is no herding cattle. There is no camping around a fire. There is no greedy eastern businessman for us to punch in the jaw at the end. The list goes on and on. All the things we want from a Western are not here. But we don't have to hit everything. But one of the things I loved about all this in World War II is that it really did take us on, like, at least the big highlights of a World War II story. You know, we didn't cram in every single trope, but you got something from all four World War II food groups, right? You got your big battle scene, plated up real nice next to a gruff general, got a little Hitler on the side. Truly, if I had written a list of all the things I expected from this Western adventure, I doubt this adventure would have hit one of them. So this Western simply is not a Western. Uh, that's kind of problem number one. In related news... Problem number two, the fucking crows are. Uh, I talked a little bit. I was very nice to them when they first appeared, right? Mechanically, the crows are are well-implemented Doctor Who-style rubber monster mooks. They're plausibly a huge threat to regular non-hero people, and they're threatening enough that it makes sense to run from them when they're in a big group, try to escape the jail cell they inevitably throw you into, but not so threatening that they have any chance to defeat one lone dissenter among the oppressed masses assuming that one dissenter has basically anything going for them. Above average intelligence, a lot of determination, some kind of bullshit sci-fi lockpick, just anything. In terms of mechanics, the crows are work on that level. But the question is, what are they doing here? Because, as you may have forgotten, 
as indeed the author seems to have forgotten at some point in the process, this is not a Doctor Who module. This is theoretically a Western module. We didn't really need lizard people with laser guns who force you to spend a lot of time languishing in cells and stumbling into info about their master plan. Like that That's not what this adventure should have been. But in fact, like by weight, this adventure is very much that. There's a ton of Crozar in this adventure. And it would be bad enough if they were just not appropriate here, but they're also, like, on their own terms, just not compelling. There's not anything interesting about the Crozar. They're by far the most frequent and important antagonist in this adventure, and they don't feel like they remotely belong in the Western genre, and they're not leveraged in any way to place the player characters into the Western genre. In fact, the Crozar primarily function to keep the player characters from getting to what little cowboy shit there is in this adventure. Not only am I not going to give you a Western adventure, says the author, but I'm going to have these lizards lock you in a room so you can't go find one on your own. So the Crozar have no place here. Uh, you know what could theoretically be good in this adventure, but I also hate? The endless out-of-character quizzes and math problems and puzzles. Way too many, way too similar. There are, what, three or four separate history quizzes that you're supposed to take out-of-character in this role-playing adventure. They're badly implemented. They don't work. They're not fun. I just can't say enough about how much I hate the history quizzes here in particular, but the rest of the author's ideas in this vein are not much better. The chess scene with Napoleon, good idea, but in execution, a disastrous night of role-playing just waiting to happen. Proofreading Einstein's math, are you fucking kidding me? We have to look over his numbers and see where he made a multiplication error out of character, and if it were just one of these, that would be one bad scene, but like, as much as this adventure is dominated by the crows are, its big memorable moments are when we have to stop role-playing and do homework. And then we go back to fighting the lizard people in this supposed Western. It's the one-two punch of generic mooks punctuated by out-of-character quizzes. It's just it's just like a slow burn infuriating to the, to the point that when we got to the end of the Cronivore and we're reading about how this adventure actually ends with the players, not the characters, trying to remember and sort the dates of historical events, it's like I didn't realize how angry I had gotten until I finally boiled over the top. They're right at the very end. And, and what's unfortunate is that this was a decent idea. Like, it is fun from time to time in a role-playing game to have something that mixes up the play experience, right? Like, I think the thing with Alexander, where you write the little poem, that's fine. Pretty unobtrusive, doesn't take a lot of time. You can kind of sort of do it in character, even though it's mixing up the play experience. And, you know, you can kind of do it for as long as it's fun. It's, it's not like the history quizzes and the math proofreading, which is like, you're not done until you're done. The chess thing with Napoleon, where you play chess against him, only it's not real chess, it's like nightmare chess with the arbitrariness of playing sorry, that's a scene that could have been fun. Chess works for Napoleon. It's fun to think of a superhero playing chess. That's a fun idea, but the execution, my god. Yeah, this idea of doing a little out-of-character activity is overused in this module and badly executed almost every single time. Uh, I mentioned during the season that I don't like the Rangers. I don't think they're doing anything here. They're taking up a ton of the book. They're not even mentioned in the adventure, but we have to sit through stats for, what, Phantom Rider 3, Red Wolf, Texas Twister, Shooting Star. That's a lot of pages to spend on bad characters who aren't contributing and aren't really mentioned elsewhere. And likewise, uh, the random modern henchman villains following Doctor Doom around, like, if you want Doctor Doom here, fine. He at least, he's a noted time travel villain. He's a big impressive reveal. I don't know that I would have used him given the way you're going to use him here. But all those henchmen villains, just absolutely wasted. There's no reason for them to be here. There's just not enough space in the adventure for them. And you can see, I mean, I mean, it's bad enough to introduce a supervillain out of nowhere in the last scene of your adventure and then have them dispatched in two rounds of combat. But to pull the same trick with five whole supervillains 
who have nothing to do with each other. I just, it's a mess. The whole end of this adventure is a mess. As much as I enjoyed the overall structure of the module, I think it was well put together and logical in terms of how one thing flows to another, there's a real sudden stop at the end. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but there's basically no big fun finale at the end. It's a big fight with characters who've just been introduced, so truncated that you might as well not bother with it, followed by yet another history test, and then done. There's no satisfying resolution at all in this adventure, not to mention the fact that, like, everything relevant to the actual real plot of this adventure is basically introduced in the last scene. Like, we've been doing Crozar, Gunslingers, Generals, all through this adventure. The threat of the Beta Bomb, this thing where we and, like, refugees from Dodge City and all these displaced people are trying to survive in the desert, that's what we've been doing this whole time. Then in the very last scene, it's like, oh, by the way, there's this monster called the Chronovore. Oh, by the way, there's Doctor Doom. Oh, by the way, he's with four other supervillains. Oh, by the way, here's what's happening to time and space. Oh, by the way, the way that you solve it is this. And then no sooner has the book revealed all that and administered the history test, done. No resolution to anything else. Like, in retrospect, looking back, now knowing the whole plot, isn't it nuts that until, like, the last three pages of this adventure, you you don't know that Doctor Doom is in this adventure, the Chronovore is in this adventure, and all of time and space are being eaten? <laughs> like, all of those things are happening throughout this adventure, but the player characters don't know about them until they're in, like, the last room of the final dungeon. I think maybe, I think we don't need Doctor Doom. I think we don't need the Chronovore. In fact, what I think we need is basically to pull out the skeleton of this adventure, strip it of its useless flesh, and uh, basically do a whole new thing, which is what I did. I, I wouldn't run this adventure. I might take inspiration from it, but I wouldn't really run it. There's almost no part of it that I feel like is good enough to justify making fixes to the whole thing. I like the poetry puzzle with Alexander. I like Twain Bot. I kind of like the investigation of the Crozar camp at the very beginning of dealing with the fucking lizard people. That's like three partial scenes, so I'm not rewriting a whole adventure for that. But for podcast purposes, if I had to run the adventure, I would totally transform it. So what I did is pretty much just take the outline of this adventure and correct and replace everything I didn't like, which was almost all of it. So here's what I came up with. But just understand, this is a tremendous amount of work that I would not do for the meager reward of one or two good scenes. But I did, in fact, do for the podcast for no reward, meager or otherwise, so... I don't know. I'm not here to justify my actions. I'm here to describe them in excruciating detail. So, scene number one, the inciting incident. In the adventure in the Weird Weird West, uh, you're just basically fixing your time machine, and then, like, a buzzer goes off that tells you you need to go to the 1870s, and so you do, and then you gotta take the history quiz and get thrown around and everything. At least it's over quickly. Um, I would definitely drop the quiz, and I would definitely drop the thing where you can get damaged on the way to dodge. And without those, there's really no reason for you to be repairing the time machine. And without that, there's no scene here. So you do need a first scene. You do need a reason to go to Dodge in the first place in the 1870s. So I decided to crib from Back to the Future and have the player characters receive a letter that somebody's been holding for them since Old West days from one of their foils, uh, one of the non-player characters who serve as like contacts and resources for the player character super team. Remember, we were encouraged to make a whole cast of these back in all this in World War II, and there has been nary a peep of how to use the foils in any of these adventures. I would use the foil. I would have one of your foils send you this letter, which you would get. It's all, you know, yellowed and clearly very old. And it's like, hey, can you come pick me up on the time machine? I'm in the Old West and I don't know why. Come to Dodge City. This is such and such a date, such and such a time. So they go back in time to the Old West, which is all you had to accomplish with this scene. There's no reason to throw them into the bulkheads and make them take a quiz. That was just the author's mean-spirited personal project. Uh, scene number two, where you fight the big dinosaur in the Weird Weird West. I would have you fight a specific dinosaur. 
the time machine goes off course, because of course it does, and our heroes end up in a canyon, right? And they can't see what's happening outside. The scanner's not working because, like, the machine landed all crooked because time eddies or whatever. You can give me this one. The, the machine is damaged. Just be grateful I didn't throw you headfirst into the wall, too. Um, however, the heroes hear a loud sound outside. And if they check outside, if they open the door, whatever, they're going to see that they're in a canyon and they're in the path of a cattle stampede. And once they deal with the stampede, either by, like, flying over it or hiding in the time machine or whatever, they find that the cattle are running from Devil Dinosaur. Uh, who is the red dinosaur created by Jack Kirby, had his own comic book series for a while, and Devil Dinosaur comes to investigate the heroes. So this can be a fight. Uh, Devil is hungry and will definitely defend himself, uh, but he's also an unusually intelligent T-Rex. Unusually intelligent and unusually red, I think, are his two primary features. So if you're cool and you don't assume this is a combat, you can get by without fighting him. And at this point, I fork the plot. If the player characters notice that Devil Dinosaur is like looking for something, seems a bit intelligent and doesn't really want to fight them, then they can actually sort of express that emotionally to Devil and just, like, go with him. That's a very touchy-feely option, but they can do it. Or they can track him and try to figure out what's going on here. Why is there a dinosaur in the Old West? That's one path. The other path is to go the opposite way down the canyon from the dinosaur. Perhaps the more sensible option. Although it's like, if there's a bright red dinosaur and you walk in the opposite direction, do you even like comic books? If you go with Devil Dinosaur, he'll eventually find a moon boy who is this little kind of hairy caveman-type character who is Devil Dinosaur's best friend, and you're going to find their whole tribe uh, who have all been transported to the Old West. So they don't know what's going on, but they've set up this kind of makeshift camp, and they're just trying to make it out here in this very unfamiliar environment to them. And at the camp, you meet this old prospector, and this prospector can do the exposition about what's going on here. Tell you, yes, this is the 1870s, you're not in Dodge City, but you're pretty close, kind of give you the lay of the land a little bit, and tell you his tale of woe. Uh, this prospector found this amazing, valuable-looking red gem or jewel of some kind in this old abandoned mine that he'd been taking a crack at, trying to squeeze a little more out of a mine that's pretty much tapped out. He finds this precious red gem there, goes to town into uh, the little town of Kinsley, Kansas, planning to sell it, but it gets stolen. So then he goes back to the mine to, you know, go about his prospector business when he is captured by, big reveal, the Mole Man. Of course, this being the 1870s, this being a grizzled prospector, he doesn't know who the Mole Man is. He doesn't know those are capital letters. He just thinks this was a Mole Man. Some Mole Man captured me, and he had all these, like, dinosaurs and monsters with him, and he forced me to tell him what I'd done with his gem, and I told him, I'm sorry, but it was probably being sold in Dodge City by this point, and I didn't know it was yours. I'm sorry, I was not familiar with the existence of Mole Men. And then the Mole Man started ranting about how he was going to call his big monster friend and as soon as his big monster friend got here, by God, he was going to go give the entire city of Dodge what for. That's the prospector's story. Now our heroes know that Dodge City is in danger because the Mole Man is going to go stomp it with a monster. The reason I've introduced the Mole Man here is because I wanted to replace Doctor Doom with a villain who can be revealed early and be a factor throughout the plot. And, you know, be a sort of secondary factor. Like, I feel like you're doing Doctor Doom a disservice by having him be an afterthought to the real plot in the way that the Weird Weird West does. I'm comfortable doing that to Mole Man. I love Mole Man, but, you know, he's a certain tier of villain. You should fear Mole Man, but not necessarily respect him. But anyway, our heroes, of course, will fear him. He's taken down cities bigger than Dodge in the past, that's for sure. And they know that their buddy, their foil, is in Dodge City. They're supposed to meet them there. So, our heroes need to get to Dodge, and they learn that if they go to the nearby city of Kinsley, they can catch a stagecoach to Dodge. That's the best way to get there. So that's one fork you can take, if you follow Devil Dinosaur in the canyon. If you don't, if you go the other way then you actually run into this 
mine with Mole Man in it. Uh, you'd have a series of encounters kind of parallel to what happens with the crows are in the Weird Weird West, except with Moloids, who are far more charismatic than the crows are, I feel. You're going to like notice people watching you as you're making your way through the mountains. Uh, maybe there are going to be some simple traps set up for you. Some rocks start getting thrown at you or start falling down on you. Then finally, you get jumped by Moloids, Mole Man's weird-looking semi-intelligent minions, if you're not familiar. Uh, but it turns out to be a trap, and they actually jump you right above a tunnel that they've dug underground. So once all the Moloids jump you, then you like fall underground and get captured by Mole Man. If you fall into the trap, then like you fall unconscious or whatever, and the Moloids take you back to the mine. If you avoid the trap, then you're you're basically walking into Mole Man's domain anyway, and the Moloids are trying to kill you anyway. So should be pretty easy to direct the player characters to go check out the mine. Once you get into the mine, you're going to find that Mole Man has been displaced to the Old West. He doesn't have his usual monsters with him, but he's been able to scrounge together a few local monsters, uh, some dinosaurs who've been transported here. So he's got some monster servants, plus his usual complement of Moloids. And yeah, basically you do a similar thing as the crows are in the Weird Weird West, only with Mole Man and his Moloids. Uh, you get captured, you get thrown in the mines, you have to escape, perhaps, using stealth or force or whatever, and you eventually get out, whether because you escaped or because you were never caught in the first place. And along the way, you've heard Mole Man gloating about how he's going to go give Dodge City what for, so you still have the information you need. And then on your way out of the mountain range, away from Mole Man, you run into that old prospector, he tells you the story, and directs you to Kinsley. So that's where the plot converges again. All of this is basically because I hate the Crowsar, I don't want Doctor Doom involved in this, and I don't like the Beta Bomb as, like, the big timer threat in the Weird Weird West. It's just, it's kind of generic, and I think there's not really a good answer available to why don't we focus on finding this one apocalyptic bomb. In this scenario, Mole Man's planning to take out Dodge City with a big monster who he doesn't have yet, but he's calling it up from the depths of the earth and it'll be here anytime. So there's a timer, but there's nothing you can do about it yet. You just need to go prepare Dodge City, or at least get your buddy and maybe some other people out of there before Mole Man can attack. And you can't really launch a frontal assault on Mole Man here, like in the mines, underground, in his domain. It's not feasible. So I just think this hangs together better logically. At this point, our heroes are on the overland, and I guess I would keep the overland stuff, sort of. Like, maybe just keep track of time and fatigue, mainly. Because there's going to be a timer, and maybe the characters can get tired, especially if they don't sleep. I don't really want to stress about water sources and food and everything. I don't think that adds to the adventure. Maybe keep some interesting random encounters. Like, I was talking in a previous episode about having a little, like, circus thing for Hawkeye to enjoy. Maybe put a little traveling circus with a secret on the random encounter table. Just some little oddball things. And what I thought might be fun to do is to um, have just like a random table of historical character types, whether it's like, you know, World War I biplane pilots or musketeers or, you know, 23rd century bionic soldiers or whatever. Put them on the random encounter table and make it so that if you encounter them, then you sort of write them down on a list and you'll have good relations with these people later. I think that gives the player something to track to make them feel like they've accomplished something as they go through these random encounters and like they're finding something. I think that's important. The emptiness of the grueling overland in the Weird Weird West, the big tedious risk with so little reward is part of why I, I dislike it. So like if I'm going to make you roll for fatigue, if I'm going to have the merciless sun beat down on your characters, the least I can give you is, okay, you ran into some musketeers, traded supplies with them. And please write down that musketeers like you now, that will come up in the future. I feel like that's a nice thing to give the player characters, to make them feel like they've been somewhere, to make them feel like they've accomplished something in exchange for dealing with this hex crawl bullshit. So anyway, though, I, that's a minor part of the adventure in my version of it. You go to the town of Kinsley. This is where I would put the big, like, barter town 
that I was talking about in an earlier episode with like people from all different places in Earth history trying to make it here in the Dodge City region by trading goods, whatever supplies came with them when they were unexpectedly time displaced. This is a place where you can buy some equipment. You can buy horses if you want or other Old West paraphernalia. If there's another period of history that the player is particularly interested in, they can go find somebody from that period and have a little bit of uh, time travel fun here. If there's anything you need for like survival or exploration that you didn't bring from home, you can perhaps get it in Kinsley. And I'm going to introduce a historical NPC here because spoilers, there is no Einstein. But here I would put in some historical polyglot as a translator who's helping all these people communicate and who is willing to go with the player characters to go help them deal with events in Dodge. This translator character will know things are bad there, like Alexander the Great is there, Napoleon is there, all these people from all over history are there and a lot of them can't communicate with each other. You want to do something about that and get them to like do something to save themselves from this mole person that you're talking about. So let me go with you to help you. I personally would probably use Noah Webster here, but there are some other options. If you really liked the brief appearance of James Joyce in the Weird Weird West, you could use James Joyce here. He also knows uh, French and Greek, as does Noah Webster. Or if you wanted to go with a little more of a gonzo feel, you could use Nikola Tesla here. He didn't speak Greek, but he spoke Latin. And so with a little workaround, he would work as well. And by the way, I know that Alexander the Great didn't speak what we would recognize as modern Greek. There's in fact some debate about the language that Macedonians would have been speaking and how we would classify it. But who cares? It's comic books. Like any time we spend distinguishing between Macedonian and Greek is time we could be spending facing down banditos in the Old West. Speaking of which... This is the point when our heroes and their translator get on board a stagecoach from Kinsley toward Dodge City, and the stagecoach is attacked by what appears to be a group of banditos, horsemen with guns right up alongside the stagecoach in an attempt to stop it and presumably rob it. This, if you have not guessed, is the fight cute between the Western heroes and our player characters, because this isn't really a stagecoach robbery. In fact, sharing the stagecoach with our player characters is an Old West villain known as Red Raven which is just a guy who has some wings that allow him to fly. And he's a criminal. That's really all you need to know. He has some stolen goods, and the Western heroes know it, and he's trying to make good his escape by leaving town unexpectedly on a stagecoach rather than with his big, obvious wings. But the Western heroes figured it out, so they're chasing the stagecoach to try to catch him before he can get out of their sight and fly away with his ill-gotten goods. This is going to come out like either the Western heroes at some point will explain themselves, or the superheroes will recognize them, or... If the fight cute is not going well and the heroes are not recognizing each other and apologizing and buddying up, then Red Raven will simply don his giant wings and begin twirling his mustache and gloating about how he's going to get away with his stolen goods. And at that point, the superheroes will realize that's a cowboy villain who can also fly. His presence is the clearest omen. This is a genre mashup. So our heroes team up with the Western heroes and they go after Red Raven, who's trying to fly away with some stolen goods. I wanted to keep the fight cute with the Western heroes, but I replaced the Hobart gang and all that stuff. Because, like, the Hobart gang's doing nothing in this adventure. For all that we learn about, like, Pharaoh John Hobart and his hopes and dreams, he's doing nothing in this adventure. He appears in, like, one scene and, and for what? For nothing. The fight cute, as fun as it is, is really poorly motivated. You know, it's based on the Western heroes assuming that these obvious superheroes are secretly, like, desperados. Whereas here, this sure does look like a stagecoach robbery. It makes sense that there's some confusion in the beginning. And by having them fight Red Raven instead of a nobody, we get, number one, a more fun fight scene because this is a proper Old West supervillain, as opposed to Ray Winninger's boring Old West OC. And we get to do a little exposition. The Western heroes can explain, we're all riding together because we heard tell that some of our old deadliest foes were all spotted here in the Dodge City area, so we thought they'd be up to something. And then all this history craziness started. And Red Raven, after being captured, if he is captured, can exposit that, yes, he and a bunch of 
other Western supervillains were all hired as a team by this mysterious benefactor. They've been having meetings with this benefactor on Boot Hill, just outside Dodge City, and uh, they're getting paid really well to go track down and steal these weird red gem fragments that the mysterious boss wants for some reason. Red Raven is all about the rich rewards that the villains are supposed to get from this mysterious boss because he will foreshadow. Uh, he and the other Old West villains were shown that on Boot Hill, there's a grave that secretly has this like big treasure chest buried in it with all kinds of like gold coins and shit. Their boss showed them the unbelievably rich treasure they're going to get as a reward for getting these gems for him. Then they watched him bury the chest. And after delivery of the gems, the Old West villains get to split the contents of the chest. Should work out great. When have Old West scoundrels ever quibbled over sharing their ill-gotten gains? So overall, Red Raven feels like Team Old West crime is still in the game. His own capture doesn't matter too much. This laissez-faire attitude will motivate the player characters because players fucking hate it when they get one over on an antagonist and the antagonist acts like they don't care. And the player characters can get this uh, red gem fragment thing that they heard about from the prospector and or Mole Man. Uh, what happened here is that, remember the prospector got robbed in Kinsley when he was on his way to Dodge City? Red Raven is the one who stole the red gem, right? He was looking for it was thinking he was going to have to go fight Mole Man for it, since his boss somehow knew Mole Man would have one. Hint, hint, clue, clue. Uh, but instead, he just met this hapless prospector and stole it from the prospector. Got to take a half day in his life of crime. So good day for Red Raven. But our heroes presumably caught Red Raven, so they now have the red gem fragment that Mole Man is so mad about having stolen from him, and they can continue on their way to Dodge City. And the Western heroes are going to team up with him because, you know, we're all interested in what's happening here. I bet you this red gem, this secret plan, has something to do with these history shenanigans. We're all going to Dodge City anyway, so natural time to team up. Then our heroes get to Dodge City. This alone would be a major improvement over the Weird Weird West, which is set in Dodge City, but there's no action that in fact happens in Dodge City, or any people who live there, or anything of interest in the city. Uh, everything has been cleared out, except for one cache of food and water. In my version of the Weird Weird West, in contrast, Dodge City is a, a, a bustling stereotypical western rough town our heroes go to a saloon called the hellfire saloon that's where their contact their foil in the letter told them to meet them so they go in there they check in with their foil find out that yeah they just like woke up in the old west they don't know what happened and there are other things of interest happening here not just in the city of dodge which would be amazing enough but even in this one place this one building there is more than one interesting thing happening i am a master of game design uh, also in the hellfire saloon our heroes will learn Shit is nuts right now in the Dodge City region, but things are not quite so out of control here at the Hellfire Saloon because of that gentleman sitting in the corner. Over in the corner, in a duster, with his head tipped down under a big, broad-brimmed cowboy hat, is a Deathlock cyborg. This is a half-corpse, half-cyborg warrior from a post-apocalyptic future in Marvel continuity. Nobody knows who that is or where he came from, since they're not from the post-apocalyptic future. All they know is he walked into town, and he's a faster draw than any other gunslinger, since he has a computer brain. And he just set up at that table and isn't leaving or doing anything except ruthlessly shooting down anybody who tries to start trouble here at the Hellfire Saloon. So he's a bad motherfucker. Nobody knows what his deal is. Just a visual reminder of how fucked up all of history is right now. The other big important thing that happens at the saloon, our heroes meet a saloon girl. If you've got saloon girl on your Western bingo card, you're in luck. I've got a saloon girl for you. She's called Miss Lafayette, and she's working hard as a saloon girl because she needs the income because her mother, the mysterious Madame Lafayette, who was a fortune teller, uh, died earlier this year. So the young nubile Miss Lafayette had to go start working as a saloon girl to make ends meet. Miss Lafayette, naturally, is extremely attractive in that sun-beaten, frilly petticoat Old West way. 
And maybe uh, if the player characters don't go flirt with her, which seems unlikely, she comes to flirt with them. But then she is struck by an exposition. I mean, a vision. She gets vibes from this red gem fragment that they're carrying from the Red Raven encounter, and she knows that this thing has a great and terrible power. There are more of them. They're connected somehow. Though they are powerful and dangerous, soon. Like, let's say, two days from now at high noon. Why not? These fragments will join back together, and the whole gem that results will have the power to put history right again. She sees, hazily, a future in which everything is put right. However, if the warriors and conquerors at war around Dodge City don't join together to defend themselves, she knows that Dodge City will not survive long enough for the fragments to be rejoined. So maybe you better go find Alexander the Great and Napoleon and another historical figure that Chris likes better than Genghis Khan. So that's a lot of exposition. I mean, vision. Can we trust it? Who is this girl, Miss Lafayette? Only the daughter of a recently deceased fortune teller. Could the gift have been passed on to her? Who knows? But one thing is clear. She has absolutely skewered us with plot hooks, and there's nothing else interesting to do in the Hellfire Saloon unless we want to sit here and watch Cowboy Deathlock occasionally mow down a gunslinger who tries to step to him. So let's go find those generals. This takes the place of either the Crozar Research Lab scene or the, like, Escape from the Slave Army scene where the hoplites rescue you unbelievably from the Crozar. This is the scene where you are kicked free from your initial encounters and go out to do the Find the Generals game, and you get definite information about what you're supposed to do and what kind of clock you're on. It sets up the timer. It gives you direction. Same structural purpose, because, again, remember, I, I like the structure of the Weird Weird West. I just don't like any of the things that happen within that structure. Uh, so I've replaced wandering around in the laboratory of the lizard people with actually getting to go to an Old West saloon in Dodge City. So our heroes now know that they need to go find the three main military leaders who've been fighting in the Dodge City area so that they can have all the major factions unite to protect Dodge. It's Alexander the Great, it's Napoleon, and I've replaced Genghis Khan with Chief Red Cloud, although you can use a number of different historical leaders who could work with the local Comanche around Dodge City. Uh, there's a gentleman known to history as Hook Nose. He would be a really good one to use. He's more local than Chief Red Cloud, but the specifics don't matter. The important thing is that you've got somebody who will be known to the contemporary local Comanche, just so that you can get the native people who live here into the mix in this plot and include them in the story of, like, we don't always work together or trust each other, but let's all team up to avoid being stomped to death by Mole Man's giant monster. So yeah, I'm going to say Chief Red Cloud, but there are some other good options depending on how deep you want to get into the history and politics of the local Comanche. Red Cloud's not from here, but he's close enough in time and geography that the Comanche here would know about him and would be surprised to see him around and would probably rally to his leadership in these weird circumstances. So anyway, our heroes now need to know where to go to recruit these generals. They'll learn that Alexander the Great is a major military force down the river to the east, but dealing with him has been hard because he doesn't speak English. They'll learn that Red Cloud and the Comanche and some other local native groups have all kind of joined together defensively. They're over to the west, opposite direction, in a defensible location, pulled back, defending their territory. Haven't heard much from them, but they're an untapped military resource in the upcoming giant monster fight. Finally, Napoleon, and this is not general knowledge, but the player characters will figure it out, is actually in the Dodge City Jail. Uh, he, too, is pretty weak on English and has been unable to get himself out of whatever he's charged with that has landed him in a little dinky Old West jail cell. So we got a thing happening in Dodge, a thing happening west of Dodge, a thing happening east of Dodge. Obviously, we have to split up. So we still get to have the gunslingers in the mix as player characters, even though there isn't as much overland travel in my version of the story. So briefly, the deal with Napoleon in the jail cell at Dodge, first of all, you can talk to him because your translator 
NPC, your Noah Webster or Noah Webster analog can speak French. You figure out that Napoleon was here to parlay, but supposedly was seen like hurling insults and like throwing silverware and pots and pans at people in the Great Western Inn and then finally shooting a local ruffian. But Napoleon swears that he didn't do this, but people saw him do it. So that's why he's in jail. He's being framed. The culprit, as our heroes will discover, is another of the Old West villains, Dr. Danger, who you'll recall is kind of a con man supervillain who uses powerful magnets and the villainous art of ventriloquism to bluff and mislead and exploit people. Dr. Danger knew that Napoleon was going to have one of these red gem fragments, so he used his magnets and ventriloquism to frame Napoleon for disturbing the peace and murder, get him thrown in jail. And now Dr. Danger, who is also an attorney, has been coming around. He speaks French, and he's been telling Napoleon, give me the gem, otherwise you're going before this notorious hanging judge we've got here in Dodge, and you're going to be executed. Fortunately for Napoleon, he knew that Dodge was a rough town, so he hid this very valuable gem which he acquired some time ago and has proven very useful to him in his military conquests. It seems almost to have formed a deep bond with his psyche and enhanced his powers as a warrior. Uh, he hid that thing out in the desert in an undisclosed location before he came in to Dodge. So if he were not treated with respect and were detained and searched and everything, the people of Dodge would not steal his cool red jewel. So Dr. Danger's trying to force Napoleon to tell him where the gem is. Napoleon won't do it. There are two ways for the player characters to solve this. Number one is, especially if you've got two-gun kid in the group, just defend Napoleon at trial and get him off the hook. And this would be a scene where Dr. Danger, as opposing counsel, is doing all kinds of chicanery, false testimony, witnesses in disguise, distracting the jury with magnets while Napoleon's lawyer is trying to talk, just everything he can think of to turn the case against Napoleon. Our heroes would be tasked with representing Napoleon, disproving the claims against him, and exposing Dr. Danger as the fraud that he is thus getting Napoleon off the hook and out of jail so that he can regain his gem and join the effort against Mole Man. If the heroes can't or don't want to do that, then the alternative would be to go get the gem for Napoleon from the prairie, bring it back, and then Napoleon can use it to survive his execution because it turns out one of the things the gem does is make you nearly immortal. So he can survive being hanged if he's got that gem on him. Unfortunately, Dr. Danger is listening in on everything that Napoleon says in this tiny Old West jail. So Napoleon has to speak in code, chess notation. This is where we get a little chess puzzle where Napoleon refers to landmarks out in the nearby desert or prairie or whatever by chess metaphors, and then gives the player characters a list of chess moves that are secretly a set of instructions to go to the place where he hit his gem. If the players can't figure it out, and the player characters don't make their roles to understand chess stuff, They'll still find the gem eventually, but they'll take some wrong turns and have some more random encounters out in the prairie. Anyway, at the end, no matter what, Napoleon likes you, and he's got his gem back. Alexander the Great, I pretty much like that whole segment. I'd pretty much keep it. The only thing is, as I mentioned, I'm going to talk about the language barrier. Alexander doesn't speak modern languages, so he's hard to communicate with, but Noah Webster or whoever speaks enough Greek to get by with Alexander and can translate. I recommend having fun with this by having the players write a poem for Alexander, but then translating it to Greek in Google Translate and then back to English. And then Alexander judges you as poets based on that version of the poem. But really, the poem's not very important. What's important is the party where Alexander introduces you to his guest of honor. Unfortunately, this just can't be Twainbot. I would love to keep Twainbot, but I'm not going to have a whole Doctor Doom in this adventure just to support Twainbot. So I've replaced him with another Old West villain, Iron Mask. That's the evil blacksmith who made himself a full iron suit so he'd be immune to gunfighting. In this instance, Iron Mask has put his armor to a different use, posing as the god Hephaestus. He's told Alexander and his men that he is Hephaestus. He's impressed them, bamboozled them with his super advanced Old West level technology. 
He speaks Greek, because he is an educated man, and although Alexander doesn't really believe this is a god, it's a person making a plausible case that they are a god and backing up Alexander's own claims of divinity at a time when his men might otherwise abandon him, so Alexander is kind of playing along. This basically works like the Twainbot situation, where clearly the players know that's not the god Hephaestus. I mean, it's Marvel Comics, like maybe it is, but it probably isn't. So you can catch him in some mythological lies, you can show him up with your superior technology, make him angry, whatever you need to do to throw him off his game, make him drop the con, at which point he'll try to make a grab for Alexander's red gem and run for it. Like Twainbot, Iron Mask is going to be too tough and armored for Alexander's soldiers to do anything to him, so it's going to be up to the heroes to apprehend him, keep him from getting away with the gem, and at that point, you'll have Alexander on your side. Uh, the final general, I've replaced Genghis Khan with Chief Red Cloud, partly for reasons I've already discussed, partly because I wasn't thrilled with Genghis Khan's whole section, and partly because of what I get to do with the local Comanche and Chief Red Cloud. It's going to turn out that Red Cloud's main concern about getting involved in this group effort is that he's got all these Comanche here, but they don't have enough horses to go into battle the way that they're trained to do. So he needs the hero's help in doing a big raid to get some horses to go into battle. So you pick some acceptable target for a horse raid, like Nazis or whatever. Some local group has some horses and the Comanche want them. So you get to do a scene where you go out with horses and lassos and you steal horses for justice. You get to ride, you get to chase, you get to lasso, you get to find a pretty new horse and decide that it's your horse soulmate. All kinds of... If you're a horse fan, you're welcome. I've added a horse scene for you. However, you're not going to get these horses without a fight. Not from the Nazis or whatever. Fuck them. You're going to get a fight from yet another Old West supervillain, the man called Hurricane. He is a low-level super speedster who uses his speed to run faster than a horse and fire a gun much faster than any normal human gunslinger, although his accuracy isn't great. While you're out there trying to rope horses and impress Chief Red Cloud, he's going to show up on foot, guns blazing, trying to take down Red Cloud, who is supposed to have one of these red gems, and he does. One thing that's fun about this is that the heroes are going to be on horseback for the most part, but Hurricane is going to be on foot. It's cool to have a horse chase with like one super speedster on foot that's very like superhero meets western the other fun thing is a little detail about hurricane that i love so hurricane is an extremely fast shot right he has super speed but six guns being what they are in order to take advantage of that in a big fight he needs a lot of ammo and actually a lot of guns preloaded so even though he doesn't need a horse to ride hurricane travels with a horse that is just absolutely packed down with guns and ammo to supply him as he fires shot after shot so this is a cool tactical encounter Hurricane is a very dangerous foe, very fast, makes a ton of attacks, can just let loose a one-man hail of bullets, but you're on horseback, you've got a lasso, if you can get his horse away from him, he'll still be super fast, but he'll just run out of bullets. So roping horses may in fact be an important tactical move in this supervillain combat. I, I'm, if you can't tell by my tone of voice, I'm very pleased with myself over this one. Once you've secured the horses for the Comanche, Chief Redcloud gives you the thumbs up, he's on board, you've got your generals assembled. Then you do the big mustering the forces scene in Dodge. Between the three generals, their reputation, their forces, and all the weird oddballs around Dodge all get together to defend the city from the Mole Man. So you got Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur and his whole tribe. You got the French, you got the Greeks, you got the Comanche. You got some biplane pilots, you got one tank, I don't know, whatever. You give the players the option to play whoever they want in like one big encounter in this overall defensive Dodge city. And they can play whoever they want. Gunslinger, superhero, or they can play one of the NPC groups they've befriended. So, like, they can play one of the generals if they want. They could play Moon Boy or Devil Dinosaur. Whatever. Give a bunch of player character options for the scene. Everybody gets to play the one character who they most enjoy in the defensive dodge. And this is where, eventually, Mole Man attacks. 
You've got a big monster like on the cover of Fantastic Four 1. Probably Devil Dinosaur fights that monster. You've got hordes of moloids. You've got dinosaurs who are under Mole Man's control because he's controlling them. How? I, I, I don't know. The same way he controls all those underground monsters. Who the fuck knows? I just feel like dinosaurs are kind of like monsters. So you do the big defensive Dodge City. This is not like a mass combat situation. Again, you just play out one big encounter with everybody's favorite player character option for this one fight. The big monster is taken down in dramatic fashion. The moloids are scattered. The mole man is defeated. Dodge is saved. Everybody cheer. This replaces the big like mountain pass fight and then like fighting your way back through Crozar lines. I just feel like this is a little more streamlined. It's like one big fun fight rather than little piddly encounter after little piddly encounter fighting the same opponents and retracing the same land you've been over and over. And it's a more decisive end, right? Like when you take down the big monster, dodge is saved. Unlike the beta bomb situation where it's like, oh, we disabled the primer device on the beta bomb. So now they shouldn't be able to reactivate the detonator without parts. That's all very wishy-washy and not very interesting. Big giant monster falling dead at the feet of your ragtag army. That's cool. It feels like you're done, but you're not done. Because while Mole Man is defeated with only hours to spare before the high noon on which the gem fragments are supposed to somehow allow you to put history right, it turns out that... Mole Man's gem, the one that you had since the beginning, the one that Red Raven took from that prospector and that you took from him, it's missing. One final Old West villain, the Fat Man, that's the big guy with the boomerang, is seen leaving Dodge City toward Boot Hill. Boot Hill, why that's where Red Raven said the Old West villains were meeting with their mysterious boss, who was having them gather all these gem fragments. So, like, you follow Fat Man, or you capture him and interrogate him and get information from him, or you just fight him right now and search him for the gem fragment that he presumably has, because, like, he was tasked with stealing them, and now one is missing, and he's going to the meeting place with the guy who wants the gems, so stands to reason, right? But no. In fact, the fat man does not have a gem fragment. He's going to Boot Hill on other business. It turns out that the arrangement always was. When the mysterious boss that all the Old West villains were working for got delivery of the gem fragments, he would set a signal fire on that grave where the big treasure chest is buried. Then he would leave, and the villains would go and dig up the grave and get the treasure chest and split it up, right? While the mysterious boss skips town. So that's what the fat man is going to do. Presumably, if the heroes have done well, he's the only Old West villain still at large. If not, then maybe the others could be with him. Anyway, whether it's because they stealthily follow him there, or they question him and find out where he was going, our heroes are going to go to Boot Hill. They're going to go to the place where the treasure chest is buried, and the grave is going to get dug up. But what's there is not a treasure chest, but a body. The body of Miss Lafayette's deceased mother, Madame Lafayette, the fortune teller. And embedded in that body is a gem fragment. Big comic book magic special effects. The gem fragment embedded in the body suddenly draws in and fuses with all the other gem fragments, forming one complete big MacGuffin-looking red gem. This is when the Fat Man's mysterious boss appears, a dark figure in a black hood, because why the hell not? But then the magical illusion of the hood fades away to reveal, gasp, Miss Lafayette, or rather the body of Miss Lafayette possessed, as it has been for some time, by the time-traveling sorceress Morgan Le Fay. If you know Marvel Comics, you know that Morgan Le Fay is a very powerful sorceress who can, like, project herself through time, but very often finds herself, like, sealed in various objects or, like, banished beneath the earth or whatever, so she can't fully exercise her powers and just, like, travel all over history doing whatever. That's the case right now. She's trapped in Camelot physically, but she's able to astrally project into the future, and she's able to possess one of her own descendants, which... Madame Lafayette was. Morgan Le Fay, being a big dramatic villain with lots of power, will gloat to the heroes about what's going on. She's trapped. She's trapped in Camelot, probably by Merlin. Seems like a thing he would do. That's not important. What's important is she's been looking for a way out. 
She's been scouring the timeline, and she found that a powerful item in Marvel continuity, a time-displaced blood gem, was present in 1870-whatever Dodge City. And also in Dodge City at that time was a fortune teller who was one of her descendants. So she possesses the fortune teller, Madame Lafayette, and tries to take control of the blood gem and use its power to free herself from her magical cocoon or whatever. But it blew up. The thing is, part of the lore of the blood gem is that it has this mission to fuse with, like, strong people with strong drives. It's looking in particular in this story for, like, a warrior-conqueror type. Morgan Le Fay is a villain, but not that kind of villain. And so the consciousness inside the blood gem didn't fuse with her and, in fact, reacted violently. However, she knew if she could just get the blood gem unlocked somehow, she could use its power to free herself. So she used her time travel powers, even as one fragment of the gem embedded itself in her chest, not in a good way, like Ulysses' bloodstone, but in a bad way, like the way things normally embed themselves in your chest. She used her powers to cause the other fragments of the blood gem to scatter across history, where they would presumably attract and be unlocked by the kind of person the gem is looking for, right? It has a type, the conqueror, warrior, dictator type. And she enchanted these fragments so that when they were found and their powers were activated, they would take the person who unlocked them in a big chunk of their like life and time back to Dodge City, where Morgan Le Fay could go reclaim the fragments of the gem, put them back together and use their power to free herself. She was able to do that before her body died, and then she moved her consciousness to Madame Lafayette's daughter, Miss Lafayette, who is obviously also a descendant of Morgan Le Fay. The plan worked. The various fragments of the blood gem found human history's greatest warriors and conquerors and so on, fused with them, and then threw them back to Dodge City in 1870-whatever. However, as you might expect, this completely fucked up human history, and now everything is just kind of popping up in Dodge City, and the timeline is falling apart. But that's okay. Morgan Le Fay was telling the truth about the blood gem being able to undo all of this. And she was telling the truth about the fact that, assuming all these gems were here in Dodge, they would fuse back together, come back into sync, after their little time travel adventure at high noon on this day. She just didn't tell the player characters that in addition to restoring the timeline, she's also going to use the blood gem to escape her imprisonment and rule the timeline. She initially hired the Old West villains to go get these blood gems for her, but when the heroes showed up, they were clearly more competent. So she did this little psychic saloon girl act to try to get them on the case too, which in fact worked. Now she has the complete gem. All she needs is a great warrior from somewhere in human history whom she can control completely and who is unbeatable in combat to seize control of the gem at high noon and unlock its magic to her. This is why she's been holding on to Deathlock. One of the great warriors summoned from human history is Deathlock. Since he's half robot and half corpse, that's like right in her wheelhouse. She can control the shit out of Deathlock. But nonetheless, he is a great warrior with a human heart and spirit. He can unlock the bloodstone, and there's no way to stop him from doing so right out in front of the Hellfire Saloon unless, you know, someone were to defeat him in single combat right in view of the completed blood gem and make it bond to them so that they could use its magic to restore the timeline and send Morgan Le Fay's projected astral form back to its imprisonment in Camelot. But to do such a thing, you'd have to win a gunfight against Old West Deathlock on Main Street outside the saloon at high noon. So that gives us our climactic encounter. We get to do a showdown at high noon, and one of our heroes has to somehow cleverly defeat Deathlock in this showdown to prove themselves the superior warrior. And, like, there are a million ways to work this out. Lots of clever ideas could work. And I'm not even going to get into details about this last part. It's the climactic scene. This is the easy part. Whatever your heroes are good at, that's the one thing they have to do to set the world back to rights. So that's it. Same basic structure as the Weird Weird West, in the sense that you go to find the generals to deal with an imminent threat that's on a timer. Then once that threat is dealt with, the real villain reveals herself, and you have to do the big showdown to defeat the villain and put history back the way it's supposed to be. But it's 
a showdown at high noon instead of a history test. And it's a villain who has been foreshadowed earlier. There's a reveal instead of just like you saw a hooded figure one time and then it turns out to be Doctor Doom out of nowhere. Like there's been a question about what these gems are. You've introduced the character of Miss Lafayette. You've been wondering who the mysterious person who hired all the Old West villains was. So there's a little bit more of a mystery and reveal rather than the Chronovore who kind of comes out of nowhere. Overall, though, I mean, this took me forever to do to put this together. I basically had to write a whole new adventure because honestly, I didn't want any of that shit. My final thought on the Weird Weird West, I have to say, I like the idea of a Western adventure. Ultimately, just that idea, superheroes in the Old West, is pretty much all I got out of the Weird Weird West in terms of actually using it. It's interesting because it fails in such odd ways, but in terms of a usable product, I would not recommend this one. By all means, go download and fix and play all this in World War II despite its flaws. Unless you want to start your own podcast about shitty role-playing game supplements, I do not recommend that you follow this procedure with the Weird Weird West. Fixing it, I say, deep, deep, deep into this recording, uh, is not worth your time. As it was not worth mine, but, you know, I've never let that stop me before. That's it for the Weird Weird West. We're now ready to enter the third and final segment of this season of NBC, my coverage of MT3, The Revenge of Kang. Just like last time, there's going to be a little intermission in between modules. Last time it was a week. This time it's going to be two. Two weeks is a long time, but some point during that two weeks, patrons over on patreon.com slash megadumbcast are going to get the next batch of TVA archives, where I'm going to talk in detail about the secret Zoomers, both their in-character biographies and out-of-character, the character creation process for each one of them. Plus, we're going to talk about their team vehicle, their team contacts, why Zoomer superheroes are having adventures in the 1980s in the first place, etc. So patrons, keep an eye on your Patreon feed. You'll hear from me over the next two weeks. Everyone else, join me back here on this feed in two weeks as we begin our discussion of The Revenge of Kang on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact me however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Gmail, Podbean, your favorite podcatcher, etc., etc. This episode's theme music, used under Creative Commons license, is Western Firefight 2 by Kula, whose work you can find at kula.com. That's C-U-L-L-A-H dot com. Thanks for listening.